unlike so many groups and individuals in our world today, especially those that go against the status quo of culture and society, the church is unique in that we don't cave to the demands of our society. Our goal is not to make people happy or even make them like us. Our goal is to glorify God. It doesn't matter if we anger man so long as we honor God. And it is because of this that society has a particular opinion of us. They see us as a unified force that for many of them goes against what they believe to be right and good. Often they see us as a unified enemy. We often dislike this generalization because we who are Bible-believing and gracious are often lumped together with the Bible-claiming and belligerent. But there is a positive in the world's view of the church. They see a united front based on the Scriptures. They see a refusal to capitulate because of what we believe. They may not like what we believe. They may call it hateful and hurtful, but they see it, and many even respect it, even if they don't agree with it, and without the Holy Spirit, definitely don't understand it. In other words, in many ways, the view of the world regarding the church is correct. They have, as far as they can, again, without being filled with the Holy Spirit, a right view of the church, which is why it is not those outside of the church, but those inside of it that are so familiar with what would actually be shocking to the world, the fighting, the church splits, the jealousy, the tension. It is an unfortunate reality of church life. In fact, it is not uncommon for Christians I meet, because of their own experience and observation, to share that they're praying for me because they assume as a pastor there is much backbiting from my congregation and other Christians, which as a side note is not true. I know it's true for other pastors. It's not true here, which, for which I'm very thankful. It is not uncommon as a conservative evangelical church to have Christians join us who have left difficult church situations which are rooted in conflict. Sometimes the conflict was directly, specifically aimed at them. Other times it was simply something they observed that was unhealthy within the body or even the leadership of that church. Ironically, as surprising as it may be to society, infighting among Christians is unfortunately not surprising to Christians. We experience it all the time. But why? Why is there so much tension between believers within the same church? Why is there so much fighting within a community that is to be characterized by peace and love, a people who are to emulate their God, who is a God of peace and love? Thankfully for us, James asks this very question, but not in a way that he expects an answer. He asks the question, then answers the question. And in so doing, he begins a lesson that we will cover over the next few weeks regarding friendship with the world. This is the theme of this entire section, which we'll spend two or three weeks on, friendship with the world. 
Turn with me to James chapter 4 as we begin this section, looking at verses 1 through 3. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He begins by asking two rhetorical questions. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. This morning I want to look at three factors leading to Christian conflict. Three factors that lead to the tension among believers. Now this may not actually be fighting as we may observe it, but as we will see, jealousies. Envy, gossip, criticism, frustrations. Now, although he does not yet talk specifically about friendship with the world, this is the introduction to it, and we'll see it very clearly next week. So as we go through these three factors this morning, keep in mind that worldliness or the love of the world, the things in the world, is the underlying issue in all of the factors leading to Christian conflict. And that will become very clear as we go through this passage, even though he doesn't use that term, friendship with the world, until the passage we'll see next week. So three factors leading to Christian conflict. The first is the divisive issue. The divisive issue. I want to read for you again verse 1. He asks, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? So here James poses the question in such a way that naturally leads to his answer. What he is addressing are the, quote, quarrels and conflicts within the church. And what he is ultimately asking is what is the source of those two things? Quarrels are, is literally war. That's what it means. The picture is that which we tend to think of when we study wars in history or even current wars. It is a constant, prolonged state of fighting and combat. This is not just a one-off thing. This is continuous. It is an ongoing war campaign. We're talking about within relationships. This can refer to any sort of battle, any sort of strife. Then he narrows it down and talks about or mentions conflicts. These are more narrowly battles or fights, as the ESV translates it. So when looking at a large-scale war, conflicts would be the individual battles or the specific fights within the larger war. Now, James is using both of these terms metaphorically to speak of the conflicts within the Christian community and among the personal relationships in the church. And to be clear, when I say James is using these terms metaphorically, I am not saying that in these interpersonal conflicts there is no actual violence or hurt. Because as we will see, there very much is or can be. And the question James asks is, where are these coming from? What is the source? What is the cause? What is the reason for these conflicts, these quarrels? And he uses that term, among you, which is why we understand that he is talking about fighting within the Christian community, in the church, among Christians. Having established that there is conflict among Christians, he answers his own question in a way that strikes at the heart of the matter. 
He says in the second part of the verse, Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? In the next verse, he will address the interpersonal issues that lead to the conflict. However, here he begins where the Scriptures always begins. He begins where God always begins. And that is not blaming others, not looking at your, at your circumstances, but looking at your heart. The source of the quarrels and conflicts is ultimately, he says, the pleasures in your heart that wage war in your members. Members here referring not to the members of the body of Christ, not to Christians, but the members of your own body, the physical and mental parts of you that still contain, though redeemed, sinful, fallen flesh. In other words, the reason there is fighting outside of you is because of what is happening inside of you. The reason there is a war raging inside of you is because you have these pleasures that you desire that conflict with the godliness that you desire. And thus, there is a war within the members of your physical body. Now, the key here is the word pleasures. Pleasures refers to worldly, sensual pleasures that are sinful. And the word indicates... In the Greek, that it may not be the case that you are actually partaking in or have these pleasures, but simply that you desire them. And even that desire causes many problems. You understand this, the temptation to sin. These are real-world, practical pleasures, desires, passions. In fact, this Greek word is where we get the English word hedonist or hedonism which is the pursuit of pleasure or sensual self-indulgence. Hedonism is a philosophy that refers to the theory or belief that the satisfaction of any and all desires is the highest good and thus the proper goal for all mankind. And we can be confused often when we think of this word pleasures. So I want to be clear that the pleasures that James is talking about are not just of a sexual nature, although those are included. It can be a strong, sinful desire for anything. Power, authority, popularity, being right, being heard, being comfortable. And the spiritual danger of these pleasures is seen in the New Testament because they are characteristic of unbelievers but also of those who respond to the gospel for a while and then walk away. In the parable of the soils, part of the issue for the seed that fell among the thorns are exactly this, the pleasures of the world. Luke 8, 14, the seed which fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures, same word, of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But unlike that man, those who are truly saved follow Christ, and we bear fruit, but we still have sinful desires. And that is why these pleasures battle within our members. This is the daily struggle we face of fighting temptation, that war where we go back and forth between justifying sin and pushing onward toward holiness 
while I'm still saved, God will forgive me. But the Father is real and I want to honor Him. It is a constant battle that we all face every day. And in this, we understand James's terminology because you have probably used the same words yourself. Ah, there's a war raging inside of my mind, right? You've said something similar to that, and that's exactly the idea that James is saying here. There's a battle in our minds, and it is a fight that we fight daily. It is called the pursuit of holiness. It is called sanctification. Peter uses the same imagery in 1 Peter 2.11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. We as believers need to deal with these desires because they don't define who we are, at least not anymore. We are defined in the eyes of the only one who matters, God, as righteous, as holy. We may not always live holiness, but because what he sees is the sacrifice of Christ and the blood of the Lamb, we are seen as righteous and holy. That's what defines us. And that must bleed into our character and our behavior and our thought life. Turn with me, please, to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let me read that for you. I'm reading in the NAS, by the way. Titus 3, 1 through 7. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Verse 3, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, but... When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, verse 5, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The reason I wanted to look at this passage is because it clearly defines and states these pleasures, this type of lifestyle as what we once were, but God saved us. That's no longer who we are. This is no longer who you are, but the sin is present. The longing is in you, and the temptations are real, and we must battle. We must recognize that there is a battle that is waging war in our members. And that feeling, that tension that you feel is not a call to give up because it's hard. It is to fight even harder. You must win the war that rages in your heart. Because the inevitable result is that if you don't, then the ramifications will spill out of your private thought life and into your relationships, and specifically into this church. And when we fight people outside of us, who do we fight the most? Who do we tend to pick fights with the most? The ones we are closest to. The ones we are most familiar with. And add to that, 
the people we're closest to, who cannot fire us, who by their very morality are forbidden to retaliate against us or hurt us, who's that? Other Christians. Look at verse 2 of James 4. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Here we find our second factor leading to Christian conflict, the desirous inception. The desirous inception. In other words, it is the sinful desires that lead to the inception of these conflicts. The same passions within your heart that wage war within your members eventually spill out and wage war with others in the church. Now, whatever that passion is, the point here is that when you don't get it, you let it out in anger and frustration on others in the church. Now, on the one extreme... This can be some sort of sinful longing that you don't get because it's simply out of the realm of possibility. I want that mansion. I want to be with that individual. Or because you simply can't get yourself to sin so grossly. On the other extreme, it can be change or notoriety within the local church. That doesn't happen because you aren't a leader within the church or people don't respect your opinion, so you lash out at those who are listened to. And you say, that's kind of a strange application. We'll see that this is actually possibly the more likely scenario that James is addressing by his grammar. But let's stick with verse 2 for now. James begins by saying, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Now, lust is any sort of strong desire or longing in the Greek. In this context, it is clearly something sinful. Just as a world leader or nation coveting something another nation has leads to actual war, so in our relationships, that same coveting leads to war among the brethren. And the result of wanting but not having can be murder, James says. And as I alluded to a couple weeks ago, Historical and biblical context point to James referring to actual murder. You see, this was a time when brutal murder was much more commonplace both within and outside of the law. It's why the Pharisees so easily had Jesus crucified. Going further back, we see it all over the Old Testament with even godly men like King David committing murder to get what they wanted to fulfill their passions and pleasures, in David's case, murdering to get a woman. We also have examples of murder out of jealousy of a sibling who is loved more by their father. Remember, Joseph's brothers planned to kill him. That was the plan until one of the brothers, Judah, intervened and said, what point is that? We can sell him to these slave traders. You also have jealousy of others that leads to murder Because one is jealous of their position in God's eyes. This is the reason Cain killed Abel. 
Undoubtedly, in James's context, there's a lust for power in the church that can lead to hurting others, as he has already alluded to in the warning against so many wanting to be teachers or leaders. This was also a time of the zealots, of whom one of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ, Simon, was a part of, Simon the Zealot. If you're not familiar, the Zealots were a first century political movement of Jews who sought to overthrow Rome out of their area, and they thought it was perfectly fine to use violence to do so. Because of this, many historians refer to them as the first ever terrorists, which, as a side note, is not fair because many of them refuse violence, but the reality is that murder and violence in the name of God was acceptable to them. All that to say, this was a time when murder was accepted as a religious way to solve disagreements. So this is not hyperbole, nor is it a reference to Jesus saying that anger is murder. James is saying there are those in the Christian church who may very well be on the verge of murdering to appease their own desires to get what they want. It is possible that there are members of this new church that were part of the zealots. Remember, these are formerly Jewish Jews, they're Jews who converted to Christianity, so some of them undoubtedly were part of the zealots. Some of them may have murdered for the sake of Yahweh in their minds. And so it would be easy to say, well, this is not going right in my mind in the church, so why not take out this guy as well? James goes on then to say essentially the same thing, but in different words, you are envious and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. Now, the word envious means to be zealous or to hotly desire or possess something. In the Greek, it's actually a stronger, more compelling desire than the word lust that we saw previously. This word envious is actually the word where we get the word in English zealous or zealot. The noun form of this word was translated jealousy back in chapter 3. As with the lust... This envy includes an inability to get what is desired, so the result is fighting and quarreling. These are simply the verb forms of conflicts and quarrels that we saw in verse 1. Same word, just the verb form. So now we see that it is their desires that lead to the fighting among believers. This fighting, of course, starting even earlier when the sin goes unchecked in their hearts, in their members. James ends verse 2 by telling them you do not have because you do not ask. Now, there are two nuances to this that are very important to understand because you can easily come to the very wrong conclusion. Two nuances. First, this reminds us of what we saw in chapter 1, verse 5 and following regarding asking for wisdom. The same words here. So you can see how some of this lust and jealousy is for positions of leadership in the church, They don't have those positions because they have not asked for the wisdom needed for that. So that would be a positive example. Just ask. God will give you the wisdom, as we saw in chapter 1. But the second nuance is in regard to the sinful desires. This is You need to be very clear on this. James is not implying that if you ask of God, He will give you the objects of your sinful desire. Fame, fortune, whatever. That becomes abundantly clear in the next verse. But we do know when we ask God in prayer, true believers that is, that very act purifies our desires 
such that we start wanting what God wants. And that's when the promises in Scripture that God will give you your heart's desires becomes true. It's when you as a believer line up your heart's desires with His, He will bless that. He will give you that. But when they're sinful pleasures, of course He's not going to give you those things. And you understand this, even as a believer, no matter how deep you are into that sin, you will never go in prayer as a believer and say, Lord, please make it so my wife never finds out. Lord, please let this extramarital relationship continue. No, you would never do that in prayer. You would say, help me, Father, or you just ignore it altogether. And it's not that your experience is more important than Scripture or Trump's Scripture. That's never the case. But you have experienced this. You have seen this. You have seen how even going to prayer is a time of repentance and conviction and purifies your desires. And as you pray... The sinful passions wane and the godly, selfless passions grow. And this, at this juncture, is the part of the sermon where I give you some practical application on this point to help you understand what James is saying. But something tells me it's not really needed for this point. Because we get this. You get this. You don't get what you want, so you get angry and it comes out on others, often on other Christians. Look at strife within Christian marriages. They occur because one or both spouses is not getting what they want. It could be anything. It could be respect. It could be help with the kids. It could be affection. It could be more time with the kids, time alone, possessions that they think all their friends have. And what is the result? Quarrels and conflicts within the marriage because, again, they haven't dealt with those sinful passions and desires within their own hearts. Outside of marriage, it's the same thing with your Christian friends. They don't say what you want. They don't give you the titles and responsibilities in the church that you want. They don't praise you the way you want them to. And then there's a problem. You see the theme here? The theme is what you want. That's the problem. So what happens? You cut off relationships. You get angry. You gossip. You tease. You hide criticism and anger in jokes and sarcasm. You criticize. You leave the church. Now, murder is not as viable of an option today, but it's not out of the question. You see why people kill people on the news or whatever and just for the silliest reasons. Bad breakup. Went back to the school because that teacher was mean to me. Kids bullied me 20 years ago. By the way, I know this still hits in a way that's raw for some in our church, but I have to say it. Despite the fact that our culture makes us think otherwise, suicide is murder. And when you look at the rate and reasons for suicide in our society, it is exactly what we're talking about here. It's all about what I want but cannot get. And we are so selfish that we are willing to fight our own brothers and sisters in Christ because of envy and lust. 
We look at the end of the verse, then of course you won't ask of God because you're too focused on yourself to even think to ask for help. You're too focused on what you want to humble yourself because you know that's not what God wants, to go to Him in prayer and say, help me want what you want. Self-entitlement and self-sufficiency are two sides of the same coin. The reality is that even the selfish can and will ask God for help. But James says that this is often a problem too. And we see this in verse 3, and our third factor leading to Christian conflict. We have already seen the divisive issue, the desirous inception. Finally, in verse 3, the defective inquiry. The defective inquiry. He says you don't have because you don't ask. And then in verse 3, he says some of you do ask, and you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So long as selfishness is prevalent, even prayer can be a part of Christian conflict. That's a pretty scary thought, but it's true. As long as selfishness is prevalent, even prayer can be a part of Christian conflict. Now, James begins with a statement of fact, a statement that resembles what many of us have experienced. We ask God, but we do not get what we ask for. I want to be clear. This isn't just flippant asking. We can easily see this verse and say, this is the guy who goes around, works hard, tries to get it on his, on his own strength, and then just says, oh, well, last resort, maybe I'll ask God. No. The word ask here is a word James has used previously, and it refers to pleading and begging. There is an earnest desire here. There is a begging of God, but despite this, God does not answer or To put it another way, which is more biblical and theologically accurate, he does answer, but the answer is no. And the reason for this is found in the rest of the verse. There are wrong motives on the part of the one asking, and those wrong motives involve spending what is being asked for on selfish pleasures. Let's start with the wrong motives. It's important to understand that God's refusal to give what this person is asking for is not just about the thing being requested. Again, God looks at the heart, and motives lie in the heart. The phrase, wrong motives, this is huge, guys. We say, oh, yeah, I kind of, yeah, there's a wrong motive. No, the wrong motives, that phrase, wrong motives, is one word in the Greek, and it means evil, bad, wrongly, wickedly. Do you understand? You ask with evil. That's what he's saying. So what we understand is as believers, it is possible to take this wonderful gift that God has given us, which is possible only because of the sacrifice of Christ, that is the ability to approach His throne in prayer and turn it into something that is wicked. Again, this is about the heart. This is about the motives. This is not about using the wrong formula, not saying the Lord's Prayer, not being eloquent. God accepts and hears it all. He is gracious. The problem is the reason for praying what you're praying. 
But that begs the question, what exactly makes it evil? What makes it a wrong motive? The remainder of the verse tells us, you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. The so that tells us the reason for the asking, and the reason goes back to the sinful pleasures that started this whole passage. Not only does this person have such a low view of his fellow Christians that he allows his sinful passions to run so wild that he attacks them, but he has the gall to ask God to fulfill those desires. It's as if God is treated like a vending machine that spits out whatever we want for the sake of self-gratification. Isn't that true of most vending machines? I know that's bad for me, but man, I'm hungry. And whatever you choose, if it gives you the wrong thing, man, you're banging on that thing. You're reaching in there, and then you're reminded that people have actually died doing that, so you stop, right? E4, E4. It's, just, it's not what I wanted. You've got to give me what I wanted. We hit that vending machine. We eagerly anticipate it fulfilling any and all pleasures. My friends, God is not a genie in a bottle. God is not a magic charm. And we need to start treating, stop treating him that way. But that's a classic thought, right? You grew up watching cartoons like this. There's still movies like this. What would you ask for if you had three wishes? And every movie that depicts this scenario always d- depicts the same thing because those things summarize the pleasures, the desires of this world. Fame, fortune, and comfort. Right? Well, I'd start with a billion dollars. The person who prays like this has no desire to share with others. There are no godly goals in view. All he cares about is himself, so the prayer is rejected. And we see that the wrong motives, remember this means evil and wicked, is not just about some heinous prayer request that you and I would never think to ask God for, the death of an enemy, a successful extramarital affair. The wickedness of the request lies in the fact that it is selfish. You say, that's all? Yeah, that's all, because that's pretty significant when you look at what is to be the theme of the Christian life, selfless. Very example of Jesus Christ that we celebrated last weekend. There was no selfishness in that at all. The wickedness of the request, the evil in the request, lies in the fact that it is selfish. It is simply something you want to appease your selfish pleasures with. So we need to be really careful what we pray about. But... More importantly, we need to be careful how we pray. And of course, those two are interconnected, right? With the right heart, you're going to pray for the right things. Only pray for selfish things all the time. Then you need to check your motives because they may be evil. Now, here's a practical tip. When you're praying, privately, silently, listen for how often you find yourself using personal pronouns. You know what those are? I, me, my, mine. And when you catch yourself, listen to the rest of the sentence. Are you praying for my repentance, my worship, 
my holiness, my family's salvation, my church's fellowship? Or is it some eloquent way of saying my comfort, my happiness, my house, my car, my sadness, my singleness? Look, we need to trust God to provide, and in so doing, we need to ask God for what we want. He already knows the desires of your heart. But the point is whether or not we submit these things to the Lord and desire His glory in all of it and want to slay those selfish pleasures and passions. And again, I think because we all pray all the time and it's easier to change the words that we pray, it will be easy to go home this morning and think, yeah, I need to change how I pray. No, go back to how we started this passage. It is what's in your heart. It's not just the words you say, the things you recite. Are you dealing with the selfish passions in your heart? And you say, why does he talk about things like jealousy and envy and lust? Because I don't think anyone here, because the kids are in Sunday school, prays or desires selfishly for a unicorn or pet dragon. You pray for things that you see other people have and you want it. And when you can't get it, you get mad. And if you're a believer, you're smart enough to not get mad at God, so you get mad at His people. Get mad at your spouse. Get mad at your boss, whoever it is. We see it, we want it. And the reality is, more than possessions, although we probably struggle with desiring possessions more in this area of the world because it is so wealthy, than perhaps other areas of the world where they wouldn't even fathom thinking of wanting that kind of car or home or whatever it is. The reality is, even in those possessions, what is it that you sinfully long for? To look good in front of your friends? To seem like an equal? To be respected? To whatever, have people like you for you know what you know are the wrong reasons? You've heard me say this before. We are blessed by God. If your heart is right, you can enjoy those things. Please, don't mishear me. Get rid of your refrigerator, empty your pantry. If manna was good enough for the Jews, it's good enough for me. That's not what I'm saying. But what's your attitude in that? And again, it's like any sin. Say, how do I know I'm sinning? Do you sin when you don't get it? Are you willing to sin to get it? And that's the issue here. Are you angry when you don't get it? Are you jealous when you don't get it? Do you punish? People do this. Punish God in some way. Well, that guy has that and I don't have it, so I'm not going to read my Bible. What's the point? You see what you're doing there? petty vindictiveness against God. And we do that. We do it because of our selfish desires. A well-known commentator, F.J.A. Hort, wrote this. God bestows not gifts only, but the enjoyment of them. 
but the enjoyment which contributes to nothing beyond itself is not what he gives in answer to prayer. And petitions to him which have no better end in view than enjoyment are not prayers. That's powerful stuff. He's saying if you're praying just for selfish stuff, selfish reasons, that's actually not a prayer as we would define it according to Scripture. So three factors leading to Christian conflict, the divisive issue, the desirous inception, and the defective inquiry. Tension, conflict, wars within interpersonal relationships are a reality in the church. But they don't have to be. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. It is the sinful passions and the unfulfilled desires that cause these problems and spill out, out of your heart and into the church. And as I mentioned earlier, this introduces James's teaching on friendship with the world. I think that's very obvious, even though, again, he doesn't use that phrase. This is what we're talking about, Right? When you desire the things of the world more than God's glory and more than a healthy relationship, a a strong church, it's friendship with the world. These passions are from the world. You don't deal with them. You hurt your relationship with the Savior. You are praying, but your prayers are not actual prayers. And you tear up the church. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clear example of our Lord Jesus Christ, the very epitome of selflessness, the very epitome of one who in perfect holiness could have been selfish. May we emulate our Savior. May we follow His lead. May we be the kind of people who honor you. Lord, sometimes we know that our envy and our Lust for whatever it may be becomes so strong that we don't even recognize them. We may be yelling at our kids, yelling at our spouse, hurting the church, and we don't even know why. Make us aware, Lord. Help us to be the type of people who are not just filling our minds with social media and TikTok and music and things. Help us to stop and listen and evaluate so that you may teach us and show us in each of our hearts where our selfishness lies and what the specific things we're selfish about. Help us, Lord. We need your strength to win the war that is raging in our members. Even as I pray that, I know that's unnecessary because you have already promised that. So may we submit to you, submit to your strength, submit to your spirit, your guidance, your word, your leading your authority. Lord, when we are mad at one another, when we are frustrated with individuals in our church, when we have that feeling of wanting to walk the other way when 
that person comes in the church, may we not just justify it, but may we stop and evaluate why we feel that way, deal with the sin and repent of it. Use us, Lord, to glorify Yourself and our selflessness, that we would not be people whose anger goes up to the verge of perhaps not murder, but fantasizing about it, thinking it, or even just wishing someone would stop coming so we wouldn't have to deal with him. Help us to be humble and holy, that our desires would be godly and selfless. And when you grant us those things of the world, those possessions, may we use them for your glory. I pray these things for that same thing, your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.